0: Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa Buddha Namang Sangang Pretty close to the last day of February. Winter retreat sliding right by. And is back from Hawaii, <laughs> settling back into the monastery. He's kind of on quasi-forest practice right now, so I'm filling in for Lumpur. been a marvelously rich and contemplative period lately. The monastery has been really quiet. No, uh, no emergencies. No, uh, no crises breaking out. Nothing particularly happening. And. Uh, We've been getting together for tea the last several evenings and listening to Ajahn Amaral as he's doing readings from a book he wrote with Ajahn Pasano a number of years ago called The Island, which is a a collection of teachings about Nibbana. And of course Nibbana is the uh, is the point the purpose the goal of the buddhist teachings so we're all interested in that and it's been wonderful hearing Ajit Amaro's teachings and reflections on it and it's been a theme that's really relevant and and appropriate for the for the winter retreat i've also been doing some more or less unstructured readings out of the Anguttara Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya. So the middle length and the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And uh, the flavor of it all kind of is very consistent. There's a wonderful passage, it shows up several times in the suttas, with the, and the Buddha says that just like the, uh, the taste of the ocean is the same everywhere you might taste it, the taste of salt, so too the Dhamma has the taste of freedom, no matter where you approach it. And somehow that, that I was particularly keen to chant again the uh, the Sutta, the uh, sutta and the teaching, the characteristic of not-self, again, tonight. I think it's my favorite sutta, but I always think that, though. It's like, if we're, if we're chanting the fire sutta, I think that's my favorite sutta. If we're chanting the turning of the wheel, then that seems like it's my favorite sutta those three cardinal suttas, as we call them, uh, the first, several, the most famous uh, teachings in our, in our tradition. the Dhamma the setting in motion, the Wheel of Dhamma. The Buddha talks about the four Noble Truths. That's a really good one. Talks about the, the, the truth of suffering. And how suffering has a cause. And the cause can be known, and that cause is clinging. And the clinging that causes rebirth, ever seeking fresh delight, now here and now there, namely the craving for sense pleasure, craving for existence, and the craving for annihilation. And it's interesting that this craving for existence seems almost like a standalone force that doesn't have any anybody that it belongs to. It's not like the Buddha says, your craving is your problem. He just says craving is the cause of, of dukkha. And so the... Uh, The teaching about not-self is implicit but it's not explicit so much in that particular sutta. But in the Anatalakana Sutta, it's very explicit. The Buddha says, If form were self, then form would not lead to affliction. So form, of course, is usually just in the teachings is often just merely pointing at merely uh, is pointing at the body um, which is our physical form but of course it's also the only way that we know the world so everything we know about the world we learned by interacting with it with our body so our body is the gateway to the world outside the world of form the world of Everything that we know, all concepts, all understandings of every class of duality comes to us through our sense doors, which are dependent on this body. And most of our concepts are grounded in one way or another in something concrete and physical. So even things as uh, lofty as, or abstract is mathematics. It always comes down to something very, very concrete. Mathematics is grounded in numbers. Numbers are grounded in individual objects that you can count. So the the need to, to count sheep or measure land is the foundations for something like mathematics. It builds up and gets elaborated in the mental space, but always references something physical, something in this world of form. And everything we know about form again comes through this bodily form. And so the world of form, in a way, is pointing to the entire world. Our interface to the world, this body of form. We can't really even know the four elements, we can't know heat, cold, firmness, softness, flowing, motion, any of those aspects of what's called the four elements. We can't know any of that without this body. So this body is, is our interface to all form. Whatever form there is, internal or external, past, present, or future, gross or subtle, superior or inferior. Whatever form there is, should be seen with wisdom that it's not one's own possession. This is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. So these three assertions about form, that the Buddha is teaching us, he's asking us, he's directing us as, as disciples to take that seriously and to internalize it and to actually use it as a form of reflection. So consider form. This is not mine. Of course, we're aware of it. It's in our field of presence and understanding. We're in contact with it. We experience it. But it's not mine. I am not this. Maybe you were something, but you can't really say that you're form. Because, as the Buddha points out, if you were form, if this form were you, then you'd have some say over how it ends up, what happens with it. But it just does what it does. It gets old gets sick it uh, has various things afflicting it all the time and you can't choose to not have it be otherwise other than by moving it around you have some influence over it obviously but you're not uh, you're not really in charge a great analogy is something like a rental car you know, form is like a rental car. In the end, you have to give it back. It's not really yours. The lease will be up one day and then... The question is whether you'll trade it in for a new rental car or... uh, maybe just get out of the whole business. So since we can't really call the shots on the disposition of form, we can't really take proper ownership of it and can't really reckon it as belonging to us or being under our control. We just have some, some kind of relationship with it, for now, temporarily. And then more intimately, uh, these mental factors. Feeling is not self. Feeling is this very, very close to us. I mean, it's, it's what motivates our every action. It motivates our thinking, it motivates everything that we do and say. Feeling is pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neutral feeling. Neutral feeling we mostly just ignore. Pleasant and unpleasant is constantly making us, when we're not mindful, it's making us do everything from scratch our nose to uh, think a long train of thought to say something harsh or say something kind. Everything that we do is connected somehow with feeling, so it's very, very close to our every moment of experience. We're always kind of being motivated by feeling, being prompted by feeling. And it's hard to not see it as something other than me, belonging to me, or possessed possessed by me or a feature, a characteristic of of this person that I am. But the Buddha says, well, what do you think? Is it permanent or impermanent? And, of course, you can see feelings come and go. Is it under your control or not? It'd be nice if it were. But obviously, it's not. So we just have to put up with what, what, what feelings come along. And if we're wise and we're, and we're mindful, we can simply see feelings coming and going. We can observe this, this feature that, of feeling that the Buddha is pointing out, that they're impermanent. And that which is impermanent is not very comfortable. It's not predictable, it's not safe, it's not a refuge. You can't really count on it. And so it's unsatisfactory. And that which is impermanent and unsatisfactory is missing some several key characteristics of anything you might call yours or you, me or mine. It's just something that's happening, something that you're experiencing something that you have to put up with. So taking possession of it's an extra step that's not necessary. But when you do take possession of it, you take it seriously. And then you let it motivate you. And you do things in response to it without thinking. So when something hurts, you just get angry. Hurtful words make you mad. Hurtful actions arouse anger, desire for revenge, long, painful streams of thought because of feeling. But if you're wise and you're mindful and you simply see pain arising and passing away, then that's all. That's the end of it right there. It just arises and passes away. And it doesn't have to have a long trail, a long train behind it. And the same thing goes for pleasant feeling. If if you cling to pleasant feeling, then of course, when it comes to an end, you're bereft. You have nothing, because you were clinging to it. You were counting on it for your happiness. And when it's over, as you kind of know, It will be. Then, of course, you're going to feel that hollow feeling of not having what you want, which is kind of painful. So there's just another feeling arising. So really, all these phenomena, we have this choice. We can attend to it mindfully, with wisdom, recognizing it's ephemeral, transient, constantly changing nature, or we can attend to it a little less wisely and take things to be concrete and real and serious and important and relevant and meaningful and pertaining to our immediate happiness. And for the most part, things are just coming and going, and they don't matter that much. So, our, uh, our thoughts come and go, our feelings come and go. Opportunities to have uh, food comes and goes, comes and goes. Annoyances come and go. Burdens come and go responsibilities come and go, events come and go. So the key thing is really seeing all these comings and goings with the right understanding. That's what the Anatta Sutta is really all about, is practicing this right understanding. It's a little counterintuitive that something which is true, self-evident even, requires practice in order to see it properly. It's really only because, for whatever reason, probably biological, cultural, nature of being human, our inclination is to see things wrongly, to see them as though they're solid, real, durable, dependable, and under our control, and potentially yielding some kind of stable happiness. We look at our circumstances and we think that we can manipulate our way to peace, and happiness, and happily ever after. It's one of the things about uh, the the stories that we grow up with. We we hear that punchline, and they lived happily ever after. Funny, you never really meet anybody who's who lives happily ever after. Now it seems like everybody's like looking for happily ever after, but no one ever actually got there. Like the, that prince and that princess, you know, they went off to the to the castle and they lived happily ever after. I mean, really? No one wants to tell that to a six-year-old, of course. No, they actually they just got old and they died like everybody else. But we, we, we do know this. We know this intellectually. But we keep missing the point on an intuitive level. As soon as we take our mind off the topic, we're back to falling for it again. We fall for all the lures and baits of the world, thinking that this pursuit or that agenda or this object or that person, this set of circumstances... This or that action or course of actions will somehow yield adorable happiness. That this will solve the problem. This will be the refuge that we've always been looking for. And it always turns out to not be that way. There, there doesn't seem to be this happily ever after. It's a, it's a mirage. We're like a thirsty man going across the desert looking for water and he keeps seeing water on the horizon so he keeps running after it and the closer he gets to the water the further away it fades but he keeps seeing it so he chases it some more He's still thirsty 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 that's one of the translations of tanhas thirst so this thirst is driving us across this terrain of obstacles and difficulties, seeking something that we can't actually get, which is happiness. We can have pleasure, we can get periods and moments of gratification and feeling of reward and contentment, but it's very short lived. It evaporates like that at Mirage as we approach it. We can't really have it. We can just experience it for a short while and then things change. Things always change. They're always changing and they'll continue changing. And so this is what the uh, Anattalakana Sutta is pointing out. These constantly changing phenomena they can't really be owned, they can't really be possessed, they can't be controlled. And so they can't be counted on or depended upon to yield any kind of a durable happiness. And so the Buddha keeps hammering home this point, trying to get us to to get it through our thick skulls. You're looking in the wrong place for contentment, satisfaction and peace. It's not to be found in form, feeling, perception, mental formations, or consciousness. This is mostly what we're familiar with, what we experience, where we think that the whole world is here, that this is where happiness has to be found if it's to be found. And if we were to suspect that there is no happiness to be found amongst these aggregates, we might, we might fall into despair. unless we know the secret. The secret is there's someplace else to look. In order to look there, we have to accept the truth about the aggregates. As long as we're living in denial of the truth, of the aggregates, then we'll keep falling for the illusion, keep buying into the mirage, keep chasing after that which we cannot have happiness in the aggregates they are mutually exclusive there's something fearsome about that truth this is where faith in the buddha and the buddhist teachings is really important in order to really face that in order to really accept it, to surrender to that truth, to acknowledge that it's true, to stop fooling yourself. You require an alternative. We can't really let go of our happiness in the khandas, our pursuit, our futile pursuit of happiness in the khandas, until you... We have a feeling, uh, a confidence, a sense, a prospect, that there's something else. That there really is an alternative. That there is such a thing as unshakable peace. That there is such a thing as a higher happiness. Something which doesn't depend on external circumstances. That higher happiness, the Buddha calls it, a lot of different names. The island, the further shore, the highest happiness, security, freedom from bondage, the ending of entanglement with greed, hatred, and delusion, safety, refuge, There's a lot of high praise in these words, in these terms. But it's nothing like what we've experienced before. The Buddha says it's the unconditioned, the unaging, the unborn, the undying. That which is not originated. The unlocated. There's a lot of these negations. And Amaro calls it the via negativa. So we can't find it in some sort of assertion of positivity. Like it's over here or it's over there. Uh, We can't find it in the world of conditions. And finding it is actually maybe approaching the problem the wrong way. We have to investigate, and we'll blunder across it. This is kind of the way this, this path works. When we investigate, we start to see that what the Buddha is pointing to is really true. That the khandas really are characterized by constant change, anicca. Uncertainty and evanescence, and it's not to say that the world of form is has no concreteness at all. We can experience it as concrete, but it's our experience itself that's constantly changing. So something that feels comfortable now in five minutes will start to feel uncomfortable, and so we have to move. This is the constant change that we have to endure, is our experiential change. The change isn't so important that's happening outside. The sun rising and setting and the leaves coming and going. That's part of it too. But What really counts is the way we experience it directly. Our bodies are showing us change all the time. And our eyes show us change, and our ears show us change. Our minds are showing us change. When we investigate and we see this really, really deeply, then the other aspects are self-evident. It's changing, and you can't really control it. And so it can't actually be yours. And there isn't any safety in it. And then the mind starts to look for, well, what else is there? I mean, if there's there's nothing here, like walking into a, a grocery store and seeing that all the shelves are empty, there's nothing here, nothing here for you. So then you have to look for someplace else. Well, the mind doesn't know exactly where to look, but it's the inclination to look that leads the mind, leads us eventually to see for ourselves where, where the difficulty actually lies. It's not the fact that things are constantly changing that's the problem. I mean, that's not necessarily comfortable to see that. It's it's uncomfortable, actually. It's not fun. It, 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 it undermines our desire for safety and security and certainty. We're all yearning for some kind of certainty. And the certainty that everything's changing is going to continue changing. That's not very reassuring. So when the mind starts to really look, especially with this one little hint, the second noble truth, The cause of suffering is clinging. We start to ask the question, how is the mind clinging to all this changing stuff? And as soon as you see it, you, you realize it's so futile, you can't even maintain the effort to clinging anymore. You just let it go. And this is kind of the secret that's built into the Buddha's teachings. He doesn't say so much, let go. He says, look and see. And then you'll be freed, you'll be released. Your mind will let go all by itself. The letting go is not something that you can do. Because the self that's looking for freedom, looking for happiness, looking for peace, is exactly that which is clinging. It can't really let go of itself any more than the eye can see itself. It's a bit of a paradox. The only way to really resolve the paradox is to investigate it and see it deeply. Keep looking and investigating until this process starts to unravel itself. Spontaneously. It happens in little ways. If you're watching your mind and you see some unwholesome thought arising, uh, someone moves your shoes, and you notice that your shoes have been moved and anger starts to arise, and you go, oh look, my mind is getting angry. That's kind of silly, because my shoes are right there. And this anger response is not, it doesn't go anywhere good, so I'm just going to drop it. So that's seeing how this is a passing, ephemeral ephemeral, ephemeral arising that's unwholesome. doesn't lead anywhere you want to go. And so it's easy to let it go, but only because you are paying attention. If you don't pay attention, you can't see it. Anger arises, then you have an angry mood in the mind and everything starts to look irritating and dark and ugly. If you find out who it is that moved your shoes, you might say something to them. But if you see it and you drop it, then none of that has to happen. And you can simply put your shoes on, go about your business, enjoy your day. Say a kind word Anger doesn't have to run the show if you drop it. Nor does greed or lust or desire, despair, sadness, fear, jealousy, bitterness, envy. None of those unwholesome mind states have to persist and drive action, even mental action. They're all subject to being dropped, if you see them clearly. And this is how the, you build momentum in practice. You, you look at what you can actually see and try to notice it's not self-nature. It's arising and passing away nature. It's no safety there nature unsatisfactory and don't take refuge in it see its futility and just watch it drop away by itself you can only do this if you're looking if you're attending if you're if you're intending to see the unwholesome and drop it and as you get good at that you find that dropping stuff is actually kind of fun It's nothing really terrifying. Dropping anger is like dropping a hot coal. It feels better that way. Dropping desire feels the same way. It drops you from being uh, uh, enslaved to some ideal outcome to being more or less neutral about how things are going. It's much better. So we practice in this way, we watch our minds, we see what comes up, and we try to abandon that which is not going to help, that which is not wholesome. Anything that comes up that is wholesome, like a reflection on, on the, anything that the Buddha taught, a reflection on an, in, an impulse towards generosity, an impulse towards kindness, an impulse towards compassion, those things are wholesome. And we can cultivate them. We can reinforce them. We can support them. And the mind finds an openness and a freedom in those kinds of mind states. There's no real clinging there because there's no, there's no particular self-interest that's so urgent that has to be pursued. Each one of those wholesome mind states actually is characterized by something like a, a a kind of the inverse of the not self. There's no selfishness in generosity. It's kind of the opposite of generosity. There's no self-grasping in cl- in kindness or compassion. It's more or less the regard for others. And it's not to say that one's one has no recognition of one's self in those kinds of mental states. That's not so much what the Buddha is asking us to do. By cultivating these wholesome states, we soften and de-stress the structure of the self in the mind. We lower the sense of anxiety, and urgency, and need presses itself to do things that aren't so good. By learning to drop the unwholesome agendas of the self, we train ourselves at getting good, at letting go. And then as, as meditation and the gradual path unfold over time, we see more and more deeply how the mind entangles itself in things that aren't helping and we get more and more interested in in the the benefits of untangling these knots in our minds and so we pick at it and we work at it and we review and reflect and see all the things that we can do we get better and better at it over time and if we stick with it The Buddha suggests that it really only leads to one destination, this path. This path really only goes goes towards this highest happiness, this freedom from suffering, this ultimate unentangledness with the world of the khandhas. It's not like we vanish from the world, or that the world vanishes from us. But our relationship to it can change radically, so that what happens in the world, is no longer the cause for our suffering or the cause for our happiness. What happens in the world is merely what happens in the world. And what happens in our mind is coolness, peace, and equanimity. And this is very, very much worth having. Buddha spent the majority of his life trying to convey this message to diverse people all over the area he traveled and taught. The message has made its way from there to here through time, 2,500 years, generations after generation of practitioner, exploring it, seeing the truth of it for themselves, becoming inspired going to the end, getting past all entanglements, and announcing the truth of it again and again, one generation after another. Our own teachers, Ajahn Chah, his senior disciples, the same message is coming to us through them. This is what you were looking for. This is why you came here. Not just more playing around with the khandas, that's futile. This highest happiness is on offer in this very life. So it's best for us to use our time and our energy and this life we've been given and this good comma that we have that brings us here in the presence of the teachings to make as much headway as we can and whether we go a long way or only a little way it will serve us well far better than anything else we could be doing with our time So on this eve of the two-thirds of the waypoint through the winter retreat. I leave these words for your consideration. <laughs>